my recollections in my life And all the precious memories in my life Seems that Christmas time means the most to me I've been a lot of places in my life I've seen a lot of faces in my life But when it's Christmas time It means the most to me Maybe I'm getting older And sentimental as time goes by But when the weather starts getting colder And I start to see those Christmas lights Oh, I'm a kid again And Grandpa threw a log on the fire Getting higher The smell of cedar from our Christmas tree Mama in the kitchen baking I remember those days again And loving what Mama was making in my life My daughter and grandkids are in my life And when it's Christmas time They mean the most to me Family and neighbors are in my life And my forever best friend is my wife And when it's Christmas time She means the most to me Yes, I know I'm getting older And sentimental as time goes by But when the weather starts getting colder And I can see those Christmas lights Oh, I'm a kid again And Grandpa threw a log on the fire Frost on the window again And the snow Getting higher The smell of cedar from our Christmas tree Mama in the kitchen baking I remember those days again Loving what Mama was making Yes, I remember those days again Loving what Mama was making I'm your host, Yvonne Mason, with my co-host, Ian Bush. That song was written, produced, and performed by a friend of mine, Richard Lynch. It's called Christmas Time. As we told you all last night, we are starting every show that we do between now and the end of Christmas time, Yuletide, Hanukkah, whatever holiday you celebrate this time of year. We are starting every show that we do with a new Christmas song that has been released by some of our indie artists. So those are the that one was the second one. It's called Christmas Time by Richard Lynch. Our guest tonight is author Neil Reby, and he has been a lifelong fan of Japanese giant monsters. 
since seeing King Kong versus Godzilla back in the 70s. The three-part story, Godzilla versus Etragon, published in G-Fan Issues 9 through 11, inspired him to write his multi-part Godzilla stories. These stories inclu- included Godzilla versus Super Aloisaurus, published in G-Fan Issues 15 through 17, Battle of Manazara Island, published in G-Fan number 25, and Rodana, published in G-Fan number 42. After Toho asked G-Fan to cease publishing fan fiction based on their characters, Neil posted subsequent stories on fanfiction.net. While writing Kaiju Fan Fiction, he also wrote an article for Japanese Giants number 10 and the forward to Gaftus vs. Guest Monsters Anthology and John LeMay's The Big Book of Japanese Giant Monster Movies, Volume 1, 1954-1982. Matt Dennian, author of the popular, I can't talk tonight, Atomic Rex novels, invited Neil to contribute a short story to his Attack of the Kaju anthology in 2016. Since then, Neil has switched from Kaju fan fiction to writing original Kaju stories. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Kaju is a genre that I am not that familiar with, so Neil is the expert, and tonight we are going to all get educated. I grew up watching King Kong and and Godzilla and all those monster stories, but then I got bored with them because I hated the subtitles, and the mouths never matched the words. So, but... (laughs) This this is this is something new for me. So without ado, Neil, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. Explain. Yeah, that's a common complaint, you know, is the uh, with the, the, the dubbing of the words not necessarily matching the lips, and then of course then also the subtitles. I'm like when I was a kid watching those movies. My sister always complained about the lip syncing, and and I thought to myself, okay, you got this whole entire face you can look at, but you're focused on the mouth. The lip movement to me was never was the attraction anyway. It was the monsters, <laughs> you know. But oh, well, you know, I understand that because I've, I've heard all kinds of people make those those complaints and so forth. You know, well, but, explain, uh, ex- the, the, explain to oh, our sorry, audience. Explain to our audience what kaju is, because I know people are go- listening and they're going. Why are they speaking Greek? No, we're not speaking Greek, ladies and gentlemen. This is a genre. This is a Japanese thing. So explain to the audience what Kaju is about and how it came to be and how you got involved in it. Sure. Okay, first of all, the word Kaiju is Japanese word for strange beast. And now when it comes to, now, things could get a little, little fuzzy, because the actual word for, for Godzilla, like the, the those giant monsters like Godzilla and Kong is the word daikaiju. And the dai is the Japanese sort of like prefix for big, you know, for large. But thing right. is as but thing is as, as the you know, you know how with any hobby or with any term that gets used often, it kinda of gets shortened after a while. And Correct. so people have dropped the the die off and just say kaiju. And that's usually that's mostly here in the in the West where excuse me, where well, actually, I didn't have to take that back. It's kind of the same thing in Japan, too. That's kind of how, how the whole genre kind of evolved after a while. They just dropped the die part and just say kaiju, and now that's become synonymous. 
So now how did this all get started in, in Japan? Well, it all started with A.G. Tsuburaya. He's a, a special effects um, technician in Japan, and he got his start during the Second World War doing propaganda films. And so if you ever saw anyone who watched World War II documentaries and see any of the Japanese propaganda footage of Pearl Harbor with all the little model airplanes hitting the model ships in Pearl Harbor, those were his effects. He did those. And then after World War II, I guess he was banned from the film industry for a short while, but by the 1950s he was able to kind of get his way back into it. And he was a huge fan of King Kong, and he always wanted, you know, the 1933 with Fay Ray. And he always wanted to do his own, uh, you know, giant monster movie. And so you kind of had this little coming together of different talents at this movie studio called Toho. And while he wanted to do his own King Kong movie, we had this movie producer named Tomoyuki Tanaka. And he had a movie deal down in Indonesia. And then at the last minute, back in 1954, that movie deal crashed. And he needed a movie for his bosses. And he's like, oh, gosh, what am I going to do? I just lost my movie deal. So on the flight back, he was kind of looking out the airplane window, looking at the ocean. He thought, well, how about a giant monster movie? You know, just something off the top of his head. And at the time, Toho really wasn't a, a studio that produced science fiction films. In fact, they did not have a, science, a, a special effects department. But So that's like, you know, kind of the situation they were in for. I was trying to whip together a monster movie because other – Movie studios anywhere in the world, when they don't have a, 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 a set special effects department, usually their monster movies end up being, or their science fiction films in general, end up being very schlocky. I mean, just look at all the stuff from the 1950s put out by Monogram Pictures and other small companies, and most of them weren't very good. So anyway, so here's our situation. So Tomoyuki Tanaka comes back to Japan. He pitches idea. He gets the green light. Then he teams up with Eiji Tsuburai to do special effects. Then he also teamed up with another director called Ishiro Honda, um, or probably Honda is probably the best way to pronounce it. Now, Honda, he wanted to do like um, more of your drama and documentary-type pictures, but he got talked into doing this mainly because he was not really like the um, in the totem pole. He was kind of at the bottom where the directors were, so he was the one that got saddled with the project. And, of course, this project was Godzilla. And so Honda, he told his cast and crew, because he, he wanted to do serious films, he says, okay, fine, we're doing a monster movie, but let's do our very best to make a good quality picture. And, of course, the 1954 Godzilla was the result. And mm-hmm. even today, a lot of modern movie critics consider the original Godzilla movie, you know, um, a very well-done motion picture. It was a huge hit in Japan, and it was such a big hit that it spawned, you know, a sequel the following year and a whole bunch of other special effects pictures, and where Toho then kind of like Hammer in, in Great Britain and Universal Studios in the United States became sort of like the primary studio that produced science fiction films. And, of course, most of the films they made had a giant monster in it just because the Godzilla worked with the audience, and so the producer, Tomoyuki Tunaka, wanted always a, he would shoehorn a giant monster into every science fiction film they made, even if though it wasn't a, a good fit. He did it anyway. So that's how then the, the whole kaiju genre grew from there because of their movies are very popular. They were popular in Japan. They were popular overseas. And then they start creating these little niche audiences, these little fan followings all over the world, United States and Europe and so forth. And it's basically a, a growing genre. And to answer a question you had asked before at the start of the program, like, well, how big is this? 
And I would still say this is still a genre that's in development. And to kind of get to explain what I mean, it's still in development. The first Godzilla movie I saw in the theater was in 1985, called Godzilla 85. There were six people in the theater. Me, a friend, and two people in front, and two people in back. Then in 1999, uh, no, year 2000, Godzilla 2000 came out. And there, in this which case, you probably had a couple dozen people. Then by the time that the um, Godzilla 2014, the Legendary Pictures, came out, then we had a full theater. And then Japan came out with one more Godzilla movie, which was released here in 2017, I do believe. It was uh, Shin Godzilla. And that one was only going to be distributed for one week. Ended up being staying in the United States for like several weeks. And when I went to see that movie, I saw this young couple in front of me. And I was kind of joking. Oh, I bet they're going to go see Shin Godzilla. And it turns out they did. They did go to see Godzilla. It was like you saw boyfriends and girlfriends showing up at, at a Godzilla movie, which back in 1985 was never heard of. But now you have a Godzilla movie in a theater. You get a full theater. That's and, amazing. Uh, yeah. So, Ian, jump in here because I, I, I hear your wheels turning. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know. It was that was a nice synopsis of the entire thing. So that you're definitely educated and and um, definitely I'm gonna say a master because you know master is kind of a huge term, but you're definitely one of the heavy hitters in the in the genre. So I appreciate you um, kind of catching the audience up to speed on on that history and where we're, where it was and where it's at now. My question for you is in regards to creating the monsters. Um, so I know that creating monsters is a little bit difficult. Um, I kind of have a swords and sorcery background, so I know, you know, there was people before me who had to sit there and think about how to create these monsters. What was your process of creating the monster? Did you kind of pull it from a bunch of things and just made it your own? Or, like, what, what made you want to do that? Um. Well, when I was a little kid, you know, I've always heard with the idea of writing stories. And, of course, the first thing I wanted to write was uh, giant monster stories. And this was when I was about in third grade. And so but now, um, so that was always been kind of the back of my mind. As far as creating my own monsters, you know, I take my inspiration from this one Godzilla movie I saw when I was a kid called Ghidra, the Three-Headed Monster. And what really struck me about that film is that that um, – you know, you know, the makers of these movies realized you couldn't just have a monster on the loose story because that's just going to get boring. So what they ended up doing was they started creating personalities for these monsters so they come off as characters. And Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster is probably one of the first films where the monsters were actually showing actual individual characteristics. And, um, and so that really struck a chord with me as a child. And so when I was writing my fan fiction, I was wondering, well, how do you write this, this fiction? Because kaiju giant monsters is a visual medium i thought okay one thing that the written word has advantage of is that it you get to see inside the character's head much better you can in a movie and so since these giant monsters from the movies these japanese ones have their own individual personalities i thought okay now we can really get into their heads and so i took that aspect so when i switched from fan fiction to doing original fiction so when i create my monsters i create a personality first you know, what, what's their personality, what's their motive, what's their goal, what makes them tick? I think of that first before I think of anything else, and then I just kind of just develop them from there. You know, uh, like my uh, first giant monster story I wrote, my, my first novel, I should say, 
was I Shall Not Mate. And so I got this uh, flying monster in there, and um, I decided to make him a recluse. Because, you know, like most giant monsters, uh, they're always out there in the city smashing cities. You know, they're always attacking us. I thought, well, let's have a monster that just wants to stay away from everybody, who like, has that kind of like the opposite personality type. And so his objective is sort of is to withdraw from the world rather than go out and destroy it. And then you kind of then build your story around there, like in which case the world has to intrude on him, and then how does he handle that dilemma? And then, like in other stories, um, I, I, I had this one guy I, I called Noragon, and he's in a lot of my short stories. And his quirk is, is that he's an idiot. And, he, and, and he's self-conscious of the fact that he's an idiot. So because he's self-conscious of it, he has some humility in there, which also allows him to have a little bit of wisdom in there. So that way, you know, he tries to, you know, Take, keeps in mind when he makes a decision, it's probably going to be a bad one. So what can we do to kind of curb that a little bit, you know, so it isn't quite so dumb. And so he, he's, he's much a rather earnest character, you know, kind of, you know, bungling through life and, and trying to, you know, solve his various problems. And then, of course, you always have to have a character who's sort of like the top of the totem pole, you know. And because uh, just like you have a lord of the jungle out there in, in the animal kingdom, so I created, you know, like my own apex Predator, which is Gilgamo, and of course he's like, um, like I, in, in my world, the number two in the United Nations uh, most dangerous kaiju list. He, he occupies the number two slot, and then the, the one who occupies the number one slot is, of course, your arch villain, the devil Tiamatodon, which is a, this two-headed monster, a Siamese twin, and that monster's objective is just to kill anything that's alive. You know, it's just pure hate, pure evil. And of course, the hit makes him the most dangerous. So he's the number one on the slot. And then I have like, and, and so anyway, that's how I do. It. I come about. I just think of a personality, and then I'll start giving some powers. You know, they'll make them unique from one another. But the, the main thing is, is the personality, because that when you read a story, and you guys as writers understand, it, the character and character chemistry is what stands out the most. That gives your 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 stories life. That is very very true. Because as I was reading Vista Kill, I'm going, are these people or are these monsters? Because you gave the the characters came to life on the very first page. Brown Scale, I'm going, wait, I'm reading about, I'm flipping back and forth because I'm going, Neil said this is about a monster, but it's a, I'm seeing a person here. I'm not seeing well, to his credit, to his credit, when when you um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Neil, because the monster department's kind of your your uh, cup of tea. But if I remember correctly, if you create a monster that you are relating to, you've done what you should do as a good monster creator. So take Frankenstein exactly. for example, right? Um, Shelley, you know we could feel to Frankenstein the monster, even though he was something that was not our our flesh and blood and our way of life. I believe what you're saying is Neil did the same thing. So essentially what she's telling you, Neil, is that like, hey, job well done. You, you did Absolutely. Exactly. Yes. Right. Oh, thanks. I just wanted to make him too human because a lot of the inspiration I took for the behavior was actually watching um, pet videos on YouTube because I watched those videos so I can see just how far I can get away with is what kind of emotional intelligence I can give my characters by watching actual animals. And you'd be surprised just how 
well, if you're a pet owner, you probably already know this. But mm-hmm. like, just to kind of show how clever animals can be, is like I saw this video of a crow. He had a, a, a lid of a can, and he was using it just like a toboggan, just sliding down this roof. He'll slide down, and he'll yep. go right back to the top and slide down again. I thought, okay, if a crow is smart enough to figure that out, well, then I can, that's the, the boundary that I can give my monsters. Well, I think you've done an excellent job because I, I, on the very first page, there's a hermit, ladies and gentlemen, that lives on an abandoned ranch. And he's bird watching. Well, he spots Brown Scale, who is the first character that you meet in Vista Kill. And he waves his hand high above his head, like he's waving to Brown Scale. And Brown Scale acknowledged him with a call. The, the Brown Brown Scale treated him as a friend. And I was very. I'm very impressed with the way that you integrate these characters and literally bring these monsters to life. I don't know who to cheer for yet. I don't know if I want to cheer for the bad guy or if I want to cheer for the good guy or if they both need to be cheered for. So it's like um, Ian said, reading Vista Kill is very, very engaging and enlightening, and I appreciate you opening me up to a whole new genre that all I remember is seeing where the lips didn't match the words. <laughs> so tell me oh, this. That was, sure. Go ahead. I was going to ask you, well, if you're talking about cheering the, the bad guy, did you have, you gotten this far with who the bad guy is, which is uh, Vista Kill? Uh, I'm getting there. I'm okay. There. Yeah. Why don't you find out who the villain is? I don't know if you want to cheer for that person. <laughs> you know? What do you mean? We, you, you understand? You can't tell Yvonne and I who to cheer for. We'll cheer for whoever we want. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. That that's fine. You know, just. Uh... <laughs> but but you got you also have to understand, Neil. I'm a little twisted anyway. Oh, all right. I gotcha. I gotcha. I mean, you you've been around my page enough. You know how twisted I can I can be, right? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, let me ask you this. I was watching an interview that um, you were on this panel with this group of people, and the gentleman was talking about he didn't know how y'all were going to run the panel because the characters were more, how did he put it? It was It was more like gaming as opposed to books. Do, what's the word I'm looking for? Would these characters make good gaming characters? Oh, I suppose they could. Um, you know, if you want to create a role-playing game, you know, out of my universe, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's very possible because I do make up a, a lot of different characters and, and I got a lot of different, like, you know, things that you would definitely would use for the setting in a role-playing game. Cause the role, if you're talking about, like, that type of gaming with role-playing games, you always have to have a very detailed setting and have its own like institutions to things that you can use as reference points in that game world. And I certainly do have that in, in my book. So someone wants to go ahead and make a role playing game out of it, right. and uh, and so forth. But uh, or any like even a first person I don't know um, adventure game. Because uh, yeah, I mean my the, the worlds I create are definitely very detailed. You know, it's not just yeah. monsters, but you also got a lot of um, human uh, institutions in there as well. 
So, so it, it cross platforms well, as I think what Yvonne was asking is like it can reach more, multiple media's, right? So it doesn't have to be just comic. Right. Someone wants to it could sports, be a video game. Yeah, video games, you role have playing games. Aspirations for a movie by chance, or like oh, definitely, that's kind of yeah, you can do, do movies out of this. But I often use movie music as inspiration for my scenes. You know, I'll listen to to the music and you know and daydream to it, and that sometimes so. In a way, you know, the movies are through the music is like the inspiration for for the stories, and yeah, no, that's so that works. I always got kind of a very cinematic. I'm probably this is probably true of probably all writers today when they sit and imagine scenes and imagine their their stories. They always kind of imagine it as up on the big movie screen because you know that's when we grow up, all you know, our introduction to stories is television mm-hmm. and movies. So, I actually get to but yeah, no, I, I guess if you get to the point, sure. I mean, um, if, if Hollywood wants to go ahead and, and buy the rights to my books, I'm um, <laughs> wide open to that. I, that's actually always kind of scared me with my books is if I get too cinematic because um, what I've noticed, and I don't know if you've noticed this as an author, um, Yvonne, or as a new author, Neil, if I start thinking in regards to my book being a cinema, the movie's in my head, and I don't explain it as well as I should. So I feel oh, like yeah, I, I hear you there. Yeah. So I feel that, like that I'm explaining. Happen. Right. I feel like I'm explaining this character down to you know, the the roast beef he had for lunch, and there's still a piece stuck in his teeth. But I don't put those words into the book because they're in my head because I'm too cinematic. And so people are like, "Whoa! Like what? What happened to the roast beef sandwich? Like then he has some in his teeth still?" And I'm like, "Oh man, I forgot to put that because I was more." <laughs> In my head. So you, you've already kind of said it. You, have you had that happen to you where the movie's running in your head and you're like, oh, yeah, they'll, they'll see it. But you're like, well, no, we didn't see that. <laughs> and you, you I, as well, I you had thought. a little bit of that when I first started writing years ago. Um, but, uh, you know, I had a, a – my first proofreader actually was uh, – he was – what did he, he – well, he did work in the film industry as, a, as an editor of scripts. And so that's one thing he pointed out to me, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, because he had a question I explained to him. He says, well, that's, that's nice, Neil, but it needs to be here on paper. And uh, so I have always, you know, kept that lesson in mind when I do my writing, you know, is make certain it's all there on paper. So I haven't had that problem since, you know, because I, I was kind of fortunate to have someone point that out to me right away when I first started writing, you know, to watch out for that. So what about ask, you, Yvonne? Did you ever have that issue with your writing? Oh, that it was- oh yeah, because I, you know I, I write faster. My brain works faster than my fingers. So by the time I've already set the scene in my head and, and moved on to another scene, my fingers are still writing the prior scene. So when I go back and proofread it, I, I, I will say, hey, dumbass, you, what did you mean by that? What you left this out, and then I'll rewrite it and I'll go back and read it again, and and it's the same thing. And I finally give up and throw it over to the editor and say, "Fix this," because I I think so fast. Time my fingers hit the keyboard and have typed down the prior scene, I'm already three scenes ahead in my in my head. Don't ask me why. I have no idea. The voices in my head just do what they want to do. Well, the so thought process we, does work a lot faster than your hands. So that's, you know, that's something that like that. You can't help that. That's always the way it's going to be. And we have to go back and fix it at least six times before it's right. 
or, or I thought I've said something that I didn't really say because in my head I said it, but on paper it wasn't there. So, yeah, I do have that problem, Ian, yeah. I, I, and I think it's terminal. I don't think it'll ever change. <laughs> I've been doing it well, too long. I, I guess my other question is, since we're kind of doing a crosstalk, is, you know, are, are you going to write the next monster book, Yvonne? You, you got a big monster in mind? No, 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 monsters are not my stick. No, 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 monsters are not my stick. I will leave that to Neil. He is the authority on it. He does it very, very well. I want to see. I want to see him be the bestseller in the monster realm. My monsters are people. I write monster people really, really well. So he can have he can have the two headed monsters and the flying monsters that call and he does it beautifully. I did not realize that this was a thing and now I do and yeah. it will be an interesting read. But no, I no, I'm not going into that genre. Mm-mm. I don't want hey. my characters not being able to make their lips match. Uh. <laughs> right, Neil, do you do you feel like you get a lot of um? And I, I use this term not as negative as it sounds, but maybe like some um, early criticism or, or judgment on your genre more than maybe other uh, authors might on their books. I know it's kind of like a, a perspective, speculative question, but do you feel like a lot of people, when you when you try to explain it, aren't as engaged as Yvonne and I, and they kind of just like sell you off faster? Because I've seen that with um, other people who are into, like, even comic books before we started doing the big Marvel Universe, they would talk about this, and they would talk about it with so much excitement, and I would be excited because they were excited. That's just the type of person I am. If you love something, I'm going to get excited about it, too, and be like, oh, man, that's so cool because I'm doing it for you. Like, everyone should feel like they're special in that way that, hey, I have something that I'm excited about. I want to talk about it. Have you seen that? That's happened in your career so far? No, I mean, I don't, you know, um, the kind of problem that, that I deal with, and this is, seems to be a common problem for a lot of small press writers, is that, uh, you know, like, it isn't really the genre that necessarily, um, like, will turn people off. It's the fact that, they, you know, what you have to offer them is, yet they have to read it, and reading is work, you know. Because well, this is one thing I always find very frustrating for, uh, I think, for what a unique frustration for us authors. Now, let's say you were an illustrator, and so what you had to offer people is a picture. They'll get really excited and want to look at it because there's no effort on their part to enjoy it. Or if you're into fashion design or model kits, so long as the medium is visual, you can get lots of great reception from people and maybe even some purchases from people because there's no mental strain on their part. But as soon as you start showing them a big pile of words, they say, hey, yeah, great. You know, they'll give your book as much attention as they'll give someone's photograph or, you know, art piece of artwork. They'll look at it, but then that's as far as they'll go with it. You know, that's okay if you're an artist, an illustrator, because that's all a person can do with your work is look at it. But with the, re- with, with the book, you now you have to open it and go through the words, and that's usually when you start losing people when they have to open that thing up and start looking at the words. They rather just look at your cover and say, "Well, that's really great, Neil. You got a book published. All right. You want to read it? Because oh, you know? I think you know, uh, that's the, what you know, gets down to why it's so hard to be an author because you're you're offering something that requires the other person to do a little bit of work. 
and, and a lot and, of people don't sad, like to do that work. Well, and then yeah, the so sad part, Neil, is that they, when they don't read, they cheat themselves of learning because even, even with your books, with your monsters as your main characters, there is a, a modicum of learning something new if you read that book with an open mind because those those monsters are are doing things. They have good moral character. They have bad moral character. They have a good moral compass. They have a bad moral compass. They have conflict. They have resolution. They have all these journeys that they're on. And if people will read your work with an open mind, they're going to find things they didn't know they didn't know. Yeah, also, one thing I might want to add with my, my books, in case, you know, uh, people um, are aware, or just so they're, they're aware, is even though, yeah, I, I got monster protagonists in my stories, but I also have human protagonists in there as well, because I understand that a lot of people may not be able to, you know, relate to a story where it's just about animals. You know, they'll, they'll need some actual people to kind of feel more grounded in the story. So, you know, just so, so folks are aware of that my stories do have um, um, human protagonists as well as with the monsters. And so it's not just all just, you know, I don't know. animals hunting at each what other. Is, one of the scariest books I read as a young person was Animal Farm. I don't ever want to read that book again. And it was all about animals. I don't know if you. Yeah, read I never that. read it, but I know it's from Orwell, and I read 1984, so I can uh, imagine, you know, what that book was about because <laughs> oh, <yeah, laughs> yeah, it was mm-hmm. a social commentary. Yeah, it, it wasn't pretty. It was not pretty, and I read it. I was I was 11, 12 years old when I read it because I read 1984 at that same time, and I'm going, whoa, no. Let me get through this book and learn something and move on because it no it it was nasty. Mm-mm. Don't be want to reading that book again. It's true. It's yeah. the the concept is 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 very true because it, it there there is ugly in the world. But no, no, thank you. I I would rather not read that book again. And it's funny that you mentioned that book because it actually became on the banned list for a long time. Yes, and, it did. Um, we, it, I mean, that's another theme that we could probably go down is that has any of your um, books in your genre been banned by chance? Oh, not that I'm aware of. You know, I mean, like, well, one thing in my genre of the books I'm writing for, you know, with the, with the kaiju genre, that's um, kind of, again, something that's it's in its infancy and it's kind of, you know, starting to grow. Like the, the first um, like professionally published um, book on kaiju was this uh, anthology put out by, if I remember correctly, Agog Press called Daikaiju, and that came out in 2006. So that's when all this got started. And so they got out two more anthologies, and at some point this small press company called Severed Press got in there, and they published a whole bunch of kaiju novels. Um, they published Matt Denny and who did Kaiju, Eric S. Brown who did Kaiju, uh, Christopher Negro who did Kaiju, you know, a whole bunch of Kaiju stuff. And, um, and then after a while, uh, Chris uh, Negro, he broke off on his own and he started his own company called Wild Hunt Press and he has done some Kaiju books. He's also done other books like horror and so forth, but, and, but he's also, like I said, he's done the Kaiju. So that's kind of, like I said, this is kind of a thing that, that's just growing. There's like 
like two publishers that put out a lot of kaiju books, and that's it. And they both are small press, and they both have a growing list of titles. And um, and then, they, of course, you got independent authors like myself who are jumping in there and getting out our own stuff. And so I, we haven't been. Let's we haven't been around long enough to get banned. <laughs> you know. Well, I guess that's that's my mission for you now. Is I want you to create something so good that they feel like they have to censor you. Can you do that for for Yvonne and I and come back on the show and tell us what happened and how 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 it, how it came out? And well, then my we'll books jump aren't on. woke, so they might get banned for that. You know like how things are these days with cancel culture. If you don't, uh, you know. Uh, Include their talking points. You know, they got this, if you're not wet for us, you're against us attitude. So, you never know. Yvonne, Yvonne, come down from the ledge. She said the the, the trigger word. She said cancel culture. The the show will be be in a different direction. I'm saving us right now. We could definitely, if if that were to happen, we could definitely take that show on a ride that, that people would never... Get over, because you know how I feel. Yeah, I didn't mean to take that role, but those are the only people no, no, I, no. I, I can think of nowadays who are actually involved in banning anything. Because I don't know, no well, one see, really bans what, books anymore except for that crowd. That's what we're saying. I do not believe in censorship. I believe that every that people are intelligent. Well, some people are intelligent human <laughs> beings, and they should be able to pick and choose what they want to read, what they want to say, and how they want to say it, because their opinion and their belief system is as important as anybody else. So when when somebody tries to censor me or censor people or, or cancel people that that I know or don't even don't know that come to me, I can get on that ledge really, really quick because I do not believe in censorship. And that's so Yvonne and I have been doing the show for so long. I, I we her and I both know our trigger words. There's usually like a couple for me too. I'm not gonna say it because then Neil's gonna pull the trigger and it's not gonna go well. But it's always okay, funny I, that when we, bring, when we bring up censorship or when we bring up uh, cancel culture, Yvonne Yvonne's on and I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna let her. I'm gonna let her do her thing. No. When I I write my books, my my goal is 100% pure entertain. That's that's my only goal. Because you know that's that's the kind of entertainment I grew up with as a kid. Was back in the day when movies and books were all about entertainment, and I took a lot of my cues from them. Like you know when I try to figure out when I want to do my own story, try to figure out okay what what's good comedy, what's good drama, what's good action, what's good horror. And, you know, I'd sit in, in, and, of course, I grew up with all these movies made in the 1940s and 30s and 50s and 60s, you know, the golden age of Hollywood. Yeah. And all up to when Star Wars and Close Encounters came out and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so all that stuff was kind of like that's what, you know, the bread, what, what the bread and butter I grew up on. And so that's where I draw a lot of my inspiration from and, and kind of like my own philosophy of what constitutes a good story. And I know these days things are kind of – I've taken a different path. You know, where entertainment is more about, I guess you want to call it instruction, <laughs> you know, telling yeah. you what to think rather than that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I, I don't do that sort of thing. And like I said, with with, um, with the culture the way it is today, you, you know, when your goal is to entertain and someone might say, well, that's offensive and you're done. So I don't know. I just worry about trying to be entertaining. And if someone doesn't like my book, I guess they don't like it. And if they want to ban it, I guess that's their business. I guess I don't know. <laughs> I, I, oh, you know, no, I'm no. kind of like I'm not really in, into that. That you know, um, 
end of the, of trying to write something that's going to get banned. <laughs> I, I just want to just write something for people to enjoy. But Neil, just understand that that if some if, if someone tries to take that road with you, I will be the first one to nail them to the wall. Because I appreciate that. <laughs> I you got to remember, I grew up in the in the 1950s and the 1960s, and they tried they tried to ban. Um, um, they tried to ban. Um, I, my mind just went totally blank. To Kill a Mockingbird, they tried to ban. Yeah, I was thinking uh, of that book. Yep. Yep. They tried to ban Huckleberry Finn. They tried to ban Fahrenheit 54. They tried to ban Solvent Green of all things. Come on, you cannot dictate people's morality or people's ability to be free thinkers. I am a free thinker. Have been all of my life. So when somebody says, well, you can't read this because we don't like it, that just makes me just give me the book. I'm going to read it anyway. Get over yourself because you ain't all that are a bag of chips. So, yeah, if anybody tries to ban your book or talk, even if they even breathe trying to ban any of your books, just let me know. Sure. Isn't it the books that you, you mentioned that were banned were actually, you know, fantastic books? Like Fahrenheit 451, I, I walked – from my house to the library, and when I when I when I when I checked that book out and walked on the way home, literally I had that book was so absorbing. I decided just to check the first page out when I walked out of the library. I had mm-hmm. the book finished by the time I got home. It was that absorbing. And, and, and he that, just said one of my trigger words. Yeah, four four fifty one man. Fahrenheit four fifty one was the reason that I wanted to be a firefighter. The reason I wanted to be an author. Like, see, Yvonne, I. <laughs> did you give him one of my trigger words? No. Like, no oh, well, well he must have did some research on me. He did some, some counter espionage. <laughs> no, I, I'm serious. I that, I am exactly like you. I loved well, – I didn't love it. It was terrifying. But I was so entranced in this world that, like, man, why are these people just trying to burn books? Like, it seems so so innocent and genuine. It's just a book. But, like, that's what taught me the power of what we do and the power of who we are as authors is that we can literally change entire societies if we get strong enough to think a different way. And yeah, I, uh, sorry, you said the trigger word and I pulled, so. (laughs) (laughs) See, see, Neil, I told you, we we have no idea where these conversations go. They just take on their own life form. And I'm actually going to pull that thread a little bit more. Do you believe that the banned books was due to censorship, or do you believe that it was a money ploy? Because I, I, I wondered this at one point in my life. I, For some reason, I always try to find not conspiracy theories, but just different ways of like, hey, this is how the world might go. I honestly think that the banned books is a way for us to generate revenue on books that should be read. Because exactly of what Yvonne said, well, if Ian Bush's book is on the banned list, well, I want to read it now. I don't, I don't think it's like some kind of like secret dark society that figures out who needs, which authors need help. But do you believe that it's a, almost like a, a, a revenue tool in a way? It, it very well could be. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't comment on that. I really don't know. As far as like, you know, like back then, you know, like you were talking about kind of like the days before I was born. 
So I really don't know what was the motivations now. Although the, well, I can comment on today's motivations. I don't know if we want to go down that rabbit hole, but I think today's motivations is purely, you know, the the dominant culture. I feel is very insecure, and they're very fundamentalist in their thinking. And if you express a thought that does not align with what they want, well, of course, I think that frightens them because they're so insecure in their own beliefs. So they have to go ahead, and uh, that's why they can't stand free thinkers or anyone thinks outside the box because they don't know how to do that and they're afraid to do that because they don't want because they're so fundamentalist and they're believing they don't want to change their minds. And so they have to shut people up. You know, that that's my thought. I could be one hundred percent wrong, but that's 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 how I see it. But anyway, and that's as far as down the rabbit hole I'm gonna go. I, I don't know if you want to just roll back to like giant monsters again. Since <laughs> that was the original topic. <laughs> well I and the um getting back to your monsters they have their from what i from what i've read in vista Keel, these monsters have their own societal structure they have their um their for lack of a better word democracy their hierarchy they're not just it's like you said they're just not out there killing each other and destroying each other in the world around them they have a purpose in this book yeah, well, you know, as far as having their own society, again, I, you know, um, from watching like videos on animals, and you can see that, that there is a, a society out there, you know, among the animal kingdom, and so that's how then I developed my kaiju world is that you know they consider themselves part of the animal kingdom. They're just larger than normal, but they still consider themselves as part of that. And you know, the ones who are herbivores, they have to kind of like watch their backs from the predators and so forth, and. You know, and so that's kind of how their society is. And of course, the more larger you are, the more higher up the food chain you are, and the more vicious weapons you have, and so forth. You know. Um, now, if you don't mind, you know, since you know we, we we covered the monster part of my monster books, you want to like dive into like sort of the human element of it with the human characters, sure. so people know what, Ab- what that part's Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Did you get a yeah. chance to get to um, like with uh, Masuyu Mayo, um, that one woman who was. Um, at that shrine saying the prayer and then you know she had to um, go to hospice for her because she had cancer and then you had that high school student uh, Riku Sato uh, I don't so, think I've then, gotten that far yet but continue oh, okay. makes me more interested oh yeah because uh, if you only got like the first four chapters that's just kind of like all set up for What's going to happen from the rest of the book? Because what I what I do with the did with the first four chapters is kind of establish what the of course I, it establishes the world that the story takes place in, but it also kind of establishes the mythology of of that world. And then you, when you get to the human characters, because the problem that that because if you remember uh, Brown Scale, he's on that island called Pangaea Island, and that island has its own living spirit inside of it. And the living spirit, of course, tells Brownscale of how the world came to be. Basically, you know, the story has its own creation then. And then, and then after it tells how the world came to be, it then introduces who the villain is. And the villain, which is Vistakil, is on her way back. And so now he, so he sends Brownscale on this mission to help prevent Vistakil from coming back. And so then you find out in that opening, you find out that the world was created by a creator, that's what the, how Pangea Island called this individual, wouldn't use the word God because that's a human terminology. We like, you know, sort of in 
that other world, you know, like it has to be kind of like the animal kingdom terminology. And so anyway, so you kind of said you got the mythology established, then you get to the human characters, and the problem that it gets established with the monsters and sort of in the spirit realm sort of then bleeds over into human society. And, of course, humans, we humans, we don't really know how to deal with this other through our terms. And, of course, so you can have Rico Sado, who's a high school student, and, of course, he's going to get, you know, um, sort of like caught up into this problem that Bronskiel is trying to solve. And since this is a spiritual problem, he doesn't really know how to handle it because he's Japanese, and Japanese are sort of have a kind of a reputation of being a very secular society. It kind of gave an example of how secular they are. You can go to like a shrine, you know, where you have both. It could be an area where you have both a Buddhist shrine and a uh, Shinto shrine, kind of like side by side, being cared for by Buddhist monks. You know, kind of goes to show that well, you know, they don't they don't get too uptight over their faith the way like the rest of the world. Like you probably wouldn't find Catholics and Protestants sharing the same real estate. You know, <laughs> the way you would see Shintoists and Buddhists do in Japan. So anyway, so 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 the, the high school student Rico Sato gets tied up in this, and he's really not too sure how to handle it. He tries to handle it through human terms. Same thing with the, with his supporting characters trying to handle his problem through human terms. So he, you, he kind of goes on a spiritual journey where you see his problem trying to cope with it through um, secular terms, then later on through Christian terms, then later on through Buddhist terms. You know, it's like we got this problem. What is it? And of course, you know, what would humans do? Well, we 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 have our religions, you know, both secular and traditional, where we where we use to try to interpret our world and understand why the world works works the way it does and why we encounter the problems that we do. And so that was kind of like the the um, kind of the gist of the, of the story of what you see going on. Because like I said at the beginning, you find out how the world really works within the context of the story, and then you see the human characters trying to deal with the problems of the real world through their belief system. And then you get to see, well, just how accurate is their belief system compared to how the world really is. This is fascinating. And then, right. they, then, they're, dealing, then they're dealing with the animal kingdom on a different intelligent level than they're used to. Yeah. And you know what's also kind of crazy and like we I know we want to dive deep deeper into it but we're at that point Neil yeah I said last 10 minutes I'm sorry <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> see if your time so with, with, with that one book there with Mr. Kill with the whole background there but uh, anyway that's well, as concise as I can make it no it, uh, I was just saying can you believe like more in the fact that can you believe that we've, we've made it to the mark so quickly <laughs> yeah we, yeah, well, we you have... did forewarn me <laughs> <laughs> So what what I want to do now is I want you to tell the folks where you're going to be, if you're going to be at any book signings or any conventions, if not any time this year, then any time next year, so that people can be looking for you. Okay, well, um, the only place that I may make a public appearance, it's, it's really been, been difficult due to, like, you know, with the COVID restrictions and lockdowns as far as, doing things and uh, but the only thing i got on my social calendar will be g fan uh or g fest i'm sorry down in chicago i'm going to get you the date for that here in a second i'm on my computer so hang on i'll be with you but anyways that okay. usually is in like the second weekend in july 
And you can find out about G-Fest on gfan.com. The um, easiest way to find gfan.com is to go into your search engine, put g-fan.com. You go in there, that website, and then you see a tab that will say G-Fest. You click on that, and then you'll find out when that is. And so they're scheduled for at the uh, Hyatt Regency O'Hare Motel in Rosemont, Illinois, July 15th to July 17, 2022, and I'll probably have my writer's panel there, and so you can show up for that and wave me down. If you got a copy of my book, I'll be happy to sign it, and so right now that's all i got on my social calendar. Otherwise, you can find me anytime, day or night, on Facebook. Just look me up under my name, Neil Reby. Uh, my name is spelled N-E-I-L, and then last name, R-I-E-B as in boy, E, and so I'm always talking about you know where I am with my projects, or I'm posting stuff about giant monsters and or you know or anything sci-fi related. But usually, you know, in the monster genre, I, since that's what I write about, so that's what I you know, post about on my Facebook page. And then like I said updates about my books. Always, you can find my books on Amazon.com. Um, the first book I have published is called I Shall Not Mate. That's my first one. And the second one I've got out there is called Vista Kill. And if you just take the word Vista and the word Kill and put them together as one word, well, then you'll find my book, Vista Kill, which happens to be the name of the villain, by the way. And, and ladies and gentlemen, if you have not delved into this genre, I highly recommend it because this is not a genre that I normally read, but Neil put writes in such a lyrical way that you fall right into this world and you find yourself looking around and and thinking about the characters even long after you've walked out of the story. And that is a sign of not a good author, but a fantastic author. When, When an author can pull you into a book, and you're not just sitting there reading it, but you become part of the story. That, Neil, is a credit to you, my friend. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. You are quite welcome. Ian, have you got – well, before we do that, ladies and gentlemen, we will be back next Monday night with my friend Mary Brotherton, who is the founder of The Unique Magazine, who I write for, and then on Tuesday night, um, Michael Coleman will be with us. He is an indie music artist. This is his first time on the show, so join us. And I'm working on doing a special show of nothing but holiday music for an hour, just playing holiday music from our indie musicians for an hour. I'm not sure yet when I'm going to put it up. We'll play that a couple of times during this next month or so, number one, so that you get um, you can go and find their music and find their regular music, and you get to hear original music, because if you're like me, you get tired of the same old tired holiday songs, so this is some original music that you'll be able to listen to. And do you have any words for our listening audience? Yeah, I'll be quick. So um, I think we kind of talked about it a little bit yesterday, but 
we'll kind of hit again today is that, you know, different isn't always bad and um, diversity is what makes us strong, not weak. So I, I really um, applaud you, Yvonne, for getting out of your, your, your niche genre and, and taking Neil's book serious tonight. And Neil, I applaud you for um, bringing, you know, your creativity your positivity and your excitement to the genre, to our listeners tonight. And I'm just really grateful that um, you two are in my life for an hour tonight. So I appreciate your time and thank you so much. And Neil, thank you for, for taking an hour and spending with us and explaining and educating all of us about this genre. This is an exciting genre, ladies and gentlemen, and I want to see it explode. I want to see Neil on the on the New York Times bestseller list. Neil, that's my dream for you. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. You are quite welcome. Do you have any quick words of wisdom for our listening audience that you can do in about 30 seconds? Oh, like, like words of wisdom. Uh, <laughs> well, let's see. With regard to what? Um, uh, well, I guess um, if you're thinking in terms of like, well, words of wisdom for like if, for aspiring writers, um, whatever you, whatever's on your heart. Oh, uh, okay. Well, um, you know, I really can't think of it off the top of my head. Although one thing I was gonna mention, since I, I guess you you were probably much more into murder mystery and, and the horror genre, and so um, I got a book here I can recommend to you and your listeners. It's called uh, Boogie Nights, uh, which is an anthology put up by Wild Hunt Press. And I have a short story in there. And this is all about uh, monster hunters. This is more like your vampire-type monsters and ghosts and goblins and whatnot. So this is kind of like, a, um, you know, that monster hunters versus the supernatural. And it's called Boogie Nights, Dark Warriors. And one thing that's going to be interesting about how that's spelled, because you probably can know what boogie mean, would, would spell, but knights is spelled with a K instead of N. So in other words, the knights is of being a night time, it's referring to like knights as in warriors. And that's, like I said, was put up by Wild Hunt Prince, and you can find that over out there on uh, Amazon.com as well. So you can actually read a short story of mine where I wrote about a uh, ghost hunter from the year 1911. Uh, she's a young lady about oh, early 20s or so, living with her rich father. That she helps these two it, brothers deal with a haunted house. Well, I will, I'm definitely am going to get that book. But we, she is just. Our computer has just told us that they're going to get ready to cut us off. So Neil, I want to thank you for being here with us tonight. Everybody, go check out his books. Ian, as always, we we are so in sync. And join us again next next Monday night at eight o'clock Eastern Time with my friend Mary Brotherton, where we will have another hour. And Neil, I want to bring you back when you get your third book finished. So. I will hook up with you on that. And once this goes into archives, I'm going to send you the link. And I want you to spread the word everywhere because this is your story, my friend. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, this is Yvonne Mason with Off the Chain, my co-host Ian Bush, and our guest author, Neil Ribby, telling you all happy Thanksgiving and good night. Gobble, gobble, y'all. Have a good one. Good night, both, both of you. Yeah, good night.